Episode 202, Werner Berger. Welcome to Awaken Your Alpha. My name is Adam Lewis Walker, former athlete and teacher turned lifestyle and entrepreneur coach. Each week we bring you the world's most successful minds to inspire you to act on your true potential. Head over to ayalpha.com. If you really want to discuss your goals and get that clarity and then create a path to achieve it, all you need to do at this stage, go to ayalpha.com. Click on this episode, for example, scroll down, a link there, you can book in your free call, specific time that works for you as well as me. And these clarity calls standalone are very powerful. But if you just think, I'm not gonna wait till January to you know, make some significant changes, then just jump on a call and see how we can make it more of a reality for you. It is time to awaken your alpha. Okay, guys, we have a good one for you today. I think, I'm pretty sure this could be one of our most senior alphas on the show this week. We have Werner Berger on the line. He is a, the founder of the Transformational Leadership Expeditions and Experiences. He's the founder of Quest 712, which we're going to tell that we're going to explain what that means very soon. Um, he's, as I said, he's an expedition leader. Um, he's an entrepreneur, corporate consultant, health and weight loss consultant. Basically, he's an adventurer and he's done a lot of things, and we're going to dig right into that. He's an ex-pole vaulter as well, so that's that's always good to have on the show. Um, but firstly, Werner, are you ready to awaken your alpha? Am I ready to? Always ready to awaken any <laughs> part of me, not just my alpha. <laughs> Brilliant. As I said, you've done a lot. I think, as I say, you're probably, well, you are our most senior person we've had on the Awaken Your Alpha show. So is there anything you'd like to add or highlight in your brief introduction there? Uh, maybe I would simply add that I'm now the oldest person, since you're talking about seniors, yep. <laughs> in the world to have climbed the highest point on each of the seven continents, and especially the Messner seven, which is, of course, a little bit more difficult than the regular seven. Oh, well, we're going to dig into that, because to, to non-climbing folk like myself, we don't know what that, quite what that means, but I obviously I knew that, that we just talked about the story, and so I'm glad you mentioned that. Just touch on Quest 712. You've done the seven summits, but this was a quest to the seven summits in the seven continents in 12 months. And are you, was it 77 when you tried it? No, I have not tried it. I completed the seven, uh, the seven summits, or rather, should I say yeah. the eighth of the seven? Yeah. And I know that makes no sense to you <laughs> when I was 77. And now I'm waiting until I'm 81 um, because I also want to be the oldest person to have climbed Mount Everest. I am the oldest Westerner at this point, but not the oldest person in the world because a Japanese climber has upstaged me. I haven't aged fast enough. Yeah, as I say, the Japanese, they really have some, uh, they have some longevity. They definitely, they, they can live to a long time over there. This is our origin question, really. What led you to closing into 80 and, and being the oldest man in the world to, to scale all them summits? What led you to this point? Can you tell us a sort of a brief background of where you're originally from and the journey, basically, to this point? Well, originally, I was born and raised in South Africa. Okay. I saw, I was eight when I first saw somebody pole vaulting. <laughs> At this point, I was living on a farm and I started my old, own pole vault career with a bar about six inches, maybe nine inches above the ground. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you've got to start somewhere. Just, just, yeah. <laughs> Broke my arm when I tried to pole vault over my mother's clothesline. <laughs> <laughs> 
good. <laughs> and um, then came to Canada actually in 1960 with the idea of spending a few years there as a geologist and then going back to South Africa. Um, and the going back never happened. Became a Canadian citizen and um, went back to university, did more pole vaulting, absolutely loved it, didn't ever have a coach. Um, was a little bit before we got to the flexible pole. Yeah. Still vaulting with the aluminum pole. And always stayed fairly active, played tennis, water skied, snow skied. And then I was in a workshop where the guy in front said, think of three things that you would love to do before you die, but you never, you probably never will. And we didn't have the name bucket list there because this yep. was 1989. And out of the blue popped climb Kilimanjaro, because of course I was born in Africa. Yeah. See the Matterhorn, because everybody knows this beautiful mountain in Switzerland. And see Everest Base Camp, because the lore of the Himalaya. Yeah certainly has always been an inspiration ever since um, uh, Tenzing, Norgay, and Hillary got to the top in 1953. Again, never thinking it would happen. And then went home, told my folks about that. Everybody chuckled, thinking, you know, what's this old fellow wanting to do? <laughs> to start climbing at his age. I was, I was gonna say, how old, how old were you when you made that decision? 55. <laughs> and so anyway, trek to Everest Base Camp with my son, my second oldest son, yeah. had a fabulous time and completely fell in love with the mountains. Still never thinking of doing the seven summits, but wanting to go more remote, wanting to go higher, yeah. wanting to experience more of this phenomenal grandeur that this earth has. Yeah. And um, one thing led to the next, led to the next. Again, never thinking I'd do Everest. But of course, it's part of the seven summits. Yeah, we so done. Blimey. So when did you when did you scale Everest? In two thousand seven. Two thousand seven. So out of all of obviously the seven summits, which is the hardest? I didn't want to assume. I would assume as a non climber Everest. But which which was the hardest? I'm sure some went smoother than others. But what was the hardest challenge in that entire process? Actually, there were three. Mm -hmm. And every mountain um, that gets into altitude is a challenge because, of course, the body has to acclimatize. Um, and the three really were Everest going from base camp to camp one. And that was through the ice fall. And most people don't know that when you go to a mountain, you don't just start climbing, climbing, climbing and get to the top. Um, you have to go high and come back down, go high and come back down. And so we went through the ice fall three times. And the first time was just incredibly difficult. I just literally had, it felt like I had no energy. The yeah. second and third time were much easier. So that was hard. McKinley has always been hard. And it took me three attempts because of weather conditions to get to the top. Whoa. And it's hard because you've got a 55 pound backpack. You've got a 55 to 60 pound sled that you're dragging up most of the mountain. And then Carson's Pyramid, which is the eighth of quotes of the seven summits, was hard because we had a six-day jungle trek. Yeah. I was going to say, where's that one based? It's in Indonesia. Okay. It's actually a replacement, and that's why the eighth for Kosciuszko. Kosciuszko is only a 7,300-foot mountain in yeah. Australia, 
which is the highest point on that continent, okay. actually one of the seven summits. But because it's so small, members uh, say, oh, this doesn't rate. So we have to put something more challenging in. So that explains the eight summits in the seven continents. Does That's it? correct. Perfect. And so anyhow, the jungle trek was extremely difficult. The climb was phenomenal. Yeah. But um, the jungle trek was hard. <laughs> so, really hard. I'm sure you're not the only man of your age to want to, or to try this. Maybe you are, but why do you think you, you have the title as the oldest man to reach all these summits? What do you think you bring to, the, to life, I suppose, and to the, the mental side of things that made you successful? Like you, you just mentioned a man there, you had to try three times, um, but you've achieved this. What do you think helped you achieve it? Oh, definitely a, definitely a modicum of craziness. <laughs> <laughs> Ex-Polvo, ex <laughs> People keep saying, you know, why are you doing this at your age? Most people are sitting, kicking back and yeah. enjoying life. And I'm saying, I don't want to kick back and enjoy life that way. Yeah. I want to enjoy life my way. <laughs> and of course, it's a challenge to get to the top. And, and it's not just a challenge. It is just an amazing experience. And really what I mean by that is being in these mountains is just so magical. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to um, be in, in total awe, not just of, of life itself, but of the environment, of your fellow climbers, of the support people, for example, the Sherpas in Nepal, yes. or, the, or the guides and the, the porters um, in, in Africa. It's just so easy to just fall in love with that kind of an experience. And actually, I come away with having a sense of a shift in who I am being, which, you know, I, I can't replace that, especially not for any long periods of time in my day-to-day -day life. We talked about, sort of originally, then you got into Polvo, and you were sort of obviously at university, came to Canada. Then we sort of jumped to sort of 55 when you really started the awakening for the climbing phase of your life. What about the professional side? I mean, what did you want to do when you was sort of in your younger years and how did that go? Well, I came to Canada um, as a geologist and was really surprised that at the end of my first summer, I got laid off. Okay. I never experienced winter layoffs in South Africa. Yeah. So what I did is I went back to university and got a master's degree in exploration geology. Okay got married in my last year, and then the very next summer realized that geology and married life don't work very well together in Canada, because you're, in the summers you spend, the summers you spend in the bush, yeah. and winters you spend in the bush doing geophysical prospecting. And so I jumped back into university, did a master's in business administration, was going to work with Procter and Gamble at the result of that, at, at the conclusion of that, um, but then had the opportunity of taking over the running of a small company. Okay. Um, so I jumped ship, didn't even ever start with PG. We ended up buying her father out after three years. I ran it for 15 years. It was in the Gulf Coast construction, sod production, landscape contracting business. Okay. And finally, I decided at 43 to get out of it because I didn't want to keep battling with the weather. Yeah. Um, always waking up saying, oh, it's too hot, oh, it's too cold, oh, it's too windy, oh, it's too wet. And um, 
ended up retiring at 43. Oh. Couldn't stand retirement any longer. And so by I, the sounds of it, was it it sounds like it was a very successful company. But that's the um, I wouldn't say it was as successful as it could have been, should yeah. have been. Um, but successful enough to at least let me think that I'm going to retire. Yeah, I was gonna say to have that on the table, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never thinking of the emotional wear and tear of going away from something and not towards something. Yeah. So I had to find something else to do. So I ended up um, becoming, getting trained as a corporate consultant and I'm still doing some of that. Yeah. And moved from customer service to sales into leadership because until the leadership of a company works, it doesn't matter what training you do at the lower levels, nothing ever sticks. I shouldn't say ever, most of the time it doesn't stick. So I realized I had to deal with the upper echelon to make sure that they were completely in, in alignment with the win-win philosophies that we were teaching. Yeah. So as with these two sort of sides of your life, you said you still do obviously the corporate consulting and, and obviously into the leadership side. How has the climbing and the challenges that you've, you've faced on the mountains crossed over into your work with corporations and leadership and vice versa? What did you take from sort of across the two? Oh my gosh, <laughs> what a beautiful question. <laughs> it has everything to do with it because I learned more about myself. I learned more about team. I learned more about the importance of very clear communication on my climbs than I ever did as a business owner, as an MBA grad, or even as a corporate consultant. Because what I learned is that training doesn't work by itself. And yeah. most of what we see in the corporate world is training. There is some personal development that goes on. But again, it's, uh, often it's much, much, much too brief, much too short to have any lasting impact. So what I really learned on my climbs is what I, is what I mentioned about team. But the other thing I mentioned is about being present. You can't be on a mountain without being completely in the present. And when that happens day after day, hour after hour, that has a shift, or I experience it as a shift in being. And the people that I take on my transformational leadership experiences also come back talking about having had a life-changing experience, which has to do with a shift in being. And I, and I also find this with many athletes that there has been a shift in being because of the intense focus and living in the present when they're training and competing in their sports. Yeah. And that's what I can now bring to the corporate world that I couldn't bring just quotes as a, strictly as a corporate consultant or as a corporate trainer, let's say. Yeah. Now that's brilliant. I, I like that. And especially the athlete side of things and talking about focusing on one purpose and I think that's what most of the worry and well, the stress in, in life comes from. Not actually what's happening, but what you think could be potentially going to happen down the line. Or, or if you don't feel like you've got a, a direction, a purpose, a goal, you're just worrying about what are you going to do and you know, not being present. And the interesting part is the goal really is critical, but it's only one element. Mm. Because so many um, organizations actually teach goal setting and strategic planning and strategic thinking. But then the question is, why don't people follow through 
when they say, if I do this, it will change my life, it will change my business, it will change how we do business. Uh, and they don't follow through because the, the individual isn't grounded in who they are. Yeah. I can elaborate on that if you wish. But then, Oh, no, I definitely, because I elaborate on that as well, because I was going to say, in terms of people coming to you, maybe, maybe without, like we said, a clear goal or a vision or a purpose, and not being present and the things we touched on there, what strategies would you suggest or what process would you sort of go about it in, in terms of turning people around or just improve, helping people improve the quality of their life? Well, there are a number of things. One of them, of course, is physical health. Mm. And the other part is really getting to know who you are. And what I mean by that is becoming very clear on what my strengths are and really appreciating those strengths and accepting them because that gives me a power that I don't have as long as I just see, you know, what my limitations are. Mm -hmm. The other part is also seeing and accepting what my limitations are because the first one gives me personal power when I know what my strengths are mm -hmm. and that translates into assertiveness, which is critical for leadership positions. The other part is when I can truly accept my limitations and not berate myself for them. That gives me a, a, an empathy for others. And that empathy um, plus the assertiveness, actually I should have said a little, little bit differently. It gives me a humility. And the humility allows me to have empathy for others. And when you combine, combine empathy with assertiveness, now you've got the foundation for leadership. And if you then train communication skills and people skills and style modification skills and um, problem solving and decision making, everything now falls into place because you're coming from a different position than just knowing. Because if I coach you, for example, on, on listening and it doesn't come from your heart, then I know when you're playing the listening game that you're not, or I assess that you're not being authentic. Yeah. And in fact, it, it does more harm than if you were just, you know, being yourself. Um, but when you're authentically listening and authentically caring, I will know that. And I will behave very, very differently in your presence. Awesome. <laughs> I, I don't know if we I know we touched on before the interview how we met I just want to for the listeners so we met last September in in America um, it was an award ceremony that you was getting an award at um, and we found out pretty quickly I don't know how this popped up in conversation that obviously we found out that you was a pole bar and obviously I was a pole bar and so we were we were both definitely listening listening to each other because <laughs> they and you told me that in sort of since you stopped pole vaulting, you'd all in all them years you'd not come across another pole vaulter since. Absolutely, I have not. <laughs> when I met you, first of all, who you are really speaks for itself. But the other part is when we you started talking about being a pole vaulter, <clears throat> the commonality was instantly there. Yeah. And again, that's such a critical element of human um, interaction is commonality. Yeah. You don't have to have been a pole vaulter for us to establish commonality. All you have to do is be sincerely interested in me as a pole vaulter. Yeah. Even establish commonality. But when we both have the same background, yeah. basic orientation, 
of course, it becomes much easier. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's, like you said, being the listening, really being interested in finding out about the person. And then, like you said, there will be, there's good, likely to be some commonality somewhere. Um, okay. In terms of, this is like our alpha quote, in terms of whether it's an inspirational quote or just sort of a, a mantra of how you like to live your life every day, is there any quotes, it could be yourself or anyone through history, that um, really resonate with you? Well, there's one that you've probably heard many times, and I thought I was the original, but I was not, because it's all over. Yeah. And that is, if you don't have your health, you really have nothing. Mm. And really, what I mean by that is you can have a million dollars or $10 million. If you do not have your health, you would be happily giving a huge chunk of that up, maybe all of it, to get your health. So... The question is, why don't we spend more time on making sure that we can stay healthy as we possibly can for as long as we can? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's huge. Yeah, because people, people generally have a reactive kind of nature towards that. Like when it gets to a critical point or in, in any shape or form, whether it's the overweight aspect or whether it is just ill health in general, that's when they try and do something. And, you know, yeah, I completely agree with that. And it's... Yeah, it's huge. I mean, and that's part of your cons consultation. I know you do sort of um, weight loss and, and health management along them lines. Um, what, what would be your starting point for someone in terms of just sort of base camp, I guess, in terms of someone who comes, comes to you? I know it's got to be very individualized, but I suppose what are the common problems you, you see with people in this area and, and some remedies that you think are useful? Well, most people don't have a sense that a degenerative disease like cancer, for example, doesn't just start today. It started 15, maybe even 20 years ago and gradually built and built and built and built. And if we can do what our bodies need at that point in time, at the inception time, mm. our immune system can take care of most of the issues uh, related to health. I'm going to be 79 in a month and I'm not on any medications and I don't plan to be on any medications because I do not want to be part of the 85% of people that die prematurely mm. from degenerative diseases. I also don't want to be part of the 85% of the previous 85% that spend the last 15 years of their lives in pain and suffering. Yeah. So, you know, prevention really becomes the key. Now, I know that there's some genetic issues, and I'm not trashing the pharmaceutical and medical yep. industry because they are critical. Um, and what we need to do is really look at what do we need to do to, to support our bodies not to get in a crisis situation yep. so that we don't need the medical industry or the pharmacological industry. Yeah, well, I feel like I would be obviously missing a trick if I didn't ask sort of you're almost you're like your keys to longevity and not just in terms of obviously living to a, a good age, but like you said, that quality of life, because much like you said, the last, if the last 10 or 15 years, if the quality of life goes down, it's, it's kind of like, well, you know, <laughs> what's the point to a certain extent. Um, so, I mean, just from your experience, I, I would be very keen to listen to this because obviously I only know what I know from a point of a, you know, a 36 year old. So I definitely don't know what it's like to be in your position, but I would be very keen to find out sooner <laughs> rather than later. <laughs> well, there are four keys really. And the first one is to attempt to eliminate toxins as much as possible. And for example, anybody that smokes is actually inhaling toxins into their body. 
which means the body has to work so much harder and over time for most people there's a deterioration as a result so eliminate toxins the second one of course has to do with nutrition the more junk food i eat the more free radicals i bring into my body and the harder the body has to work so i want to look at nutrition and i want to look at you know are the foods that i'm eating do they still have the vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants that they used to have 50 years ago? Yeah. Farm in South Africa, for example, we had no problem with food being really healthy food. But when you think in terms of spinach, only having a fraction of the iron it had 40, 50 years ago, you know, now we know that we need to supplement for that. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a really good point because I think yeah, people just assume, like, like you say, spinach or certain things that used to have a, a very high nutritional content. Yeah, they still do, but it's, uh, you need to look into these things. You shouldn't assume because, yeah, not all foods are created equal. It depends, on, obviously, its source and where it comes from. Um, yeah. So, no, yeah, definitely carry on. <laughs> and on those same vein, along that same vein, we also need to be aware of what our liquid intake is. We need a lot of liquid. And the question becomes, how clean or pure is our water? And I don't know if you know that 5,000 kids die every single day from drinking polluted water globally. And so my wife has launched into a, a, a huge water movement where she wants to have 1 million what we call purity water systems in the hands of these kids that are dying prematurely. And of course, even our city waters here in the U.S., many are polluted and contaminated with heavy metals. Yes, yeah. Everything we dump, whether it's chemicals or if it's a piece of wood that's being creosoted that is rotting, ends up going into the water table. And of course, our filtration systems don't take out heavy metals. They take out the organic stuff, generally. So, you know, we really need to be, be cognizant of that. The other part, of course, is exercise. Our bodies need and crave exercise. Mm -hmm. And if we don't do it, nothing functions as well. Yeah. And then the final part, of course, is life balance. We need to find a way of having some downtime, not always chasing the almighty dollar here in the U.S. or the pound yeah. where you are. It's toxins, it's nutrition, it's exercise, and ultimately it's degree of life balance yeah brilliant this is kind of our, our alpha round so in in terms of if you there was a, a book that you've read over obviously all your years or one recently that you think was rather very inspirational maybe maybe life-changing or just think very useful is there any books that spring to mind i had just started reading one called high altitude leadership ah that um, sounds like the sort of book you would write <laughs> I didn't know that anybody was doing what I'm doing in terms of taking people on transformational leadership experiences. Yeah. But this book ties in completely, you know, with what I experience on the mountain and what my participants are experiencing. And so far, I'm not through it yet. It's a great read. Oh, brilliant. I think of climbing, if you're going to climb that many times, obviously, it's well documented. There's on certain mountains, there's a lot of deaths, kind of like a, a yearly total that there's a, a percentage. Uh, what can you think of a point, a time when you really thought this is it? Your your number was up. <laughs> McKinley, or and got within two hundred vertical of the summit, but did not get to the top because of gusty winds and cloud moving in. Yeah. So um, that was the first of the the three attempts. 
the next time I got within a thousand of the top before weather totally obliterated us. We sat at high camp for nine days. Oh my God. When we ran out of fuel, ran out of food, we found a little window to escape down. And the crazy part was at 14,000 feet, the weather was completely calm with a, just a cloudy ceiling above. And above it was raging blizzard. <laughs> Carnage. So we got a chance to escape down. So third time, I was going to say lucky, but I really did <laughs> bloody hard work. Yeah, yeah, third time hard work pays off. Third time, we were supposed to take a rest and acclimatization day at high camp, and this was yeah. at 17,000 feet, just a bit above. Um, but we knew that weather was moving in, so we couldn't take that acclimatization day and decided to go for the summit. Yeah. The day we should have been resting and acclimatizing. So it wasn't certain that we would make it, partly because of weather moving in, partly because of not being as well acclimatized as we could have been or had planned to be. So that was one time that there was a bit of a panic that this might not happen. The other time was definitely the first time on Everest going from base camp to camp one. I mentioned earlier that yeah. was the hardest day on, on any climb ever. And the only thing that kept me going was knowing all I had to do was put one foot in front of the next, one foot in front of the next. And the other thing, I kept visualizing myself flying a kite on the summit because I had a kite in my backpack. And that's the only thing that got me through. And as I mentioned, the next two times going through the same stretch were relatively easy. But that was just a day when my head was also saying, this mountain is too much for me because those were the exact words that a fellow climber that I'd met in Antarctica climbing Mount Vincent had said when he attempted Everest the year before and had actually quit. He said, this mountain is too much for me. And those yeah. words just kept ringing through my mind over and over and over. And I had to blot them out by saying, it's just one step at a time. I'm going to fly this kite. <laughs> you mentioned a gentleman there. I mean, this could either be throughout your whole life or in your more your climbing half of your life. This is our Yoda question. Who helped awaken your alpha, who was either a, a useful guide or mentor at the time, or is there any sort of key figures that spring to mind? I'm sure there's many, but if you could maybe pick out one or two key people. Well, definitely Edmund Hillary is the first that comes to mind. When he and Norgay Tensing summited in 53, yeah. I was a farm kid, really far removed from communication, of just casually heard it on the radio, or maybe we even saw it on a newspaper that was a day old by the time it got to us. But I was really inspired by this. And the other kids, you know, they might not even have reacted to it. Yeah. So there was something going on for me there. Um, and then, you know, I, I cannot say I forgot about it, but literally it wasn't dominant in my life until I went to Everest Base Camp. And then, the experience with my son probably had a, a lot to do with just the euphoria of being in that environment. And um, he and I were struggling, actually. As a young kid, we were very, very close. Mm -hmm. Up to age 11, we always did things together. When I went to work in the garage, he was there. When I worked in the workshop, he was there. When I worked yeah. on in the garden, he was there. And then we started clashing heads. Mm. And then, we went to um, Everest Base Camp together and we really came back together again. So uh, 
he definitely had something to do with it. Regardless of their age, because we can see it can, you can start all different ages. If someone was, is inspired by this interview in terms of they've had no climbing experience before, but just us talking about it. And obviously you started at 55 from scratch pretty much. What advice would you give to someone who's, uh, who's interested in this and wants to start down that path potentially? Give me a call. Contact <laughs> me on Facebook. I'm happy to share. <laughs> You'll see me on Facebook with my arms up. <laughs> Perfect LinkedIn. So if, if, someone, if someone wants to find out more, what's the best way they can contact you? Well, two okay. ways. One is simply Facebook, Werner Bergen. That's W-E-R-N-E-R. And Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R, just lots of ERs. Yeah. Or the other possibility is going to Africa with Werner dot WordPress dot com. Okay. And I'm uh, happy to share with them. Again, I feel like I just want to squeeze as much as I can at this interview. So I just want to mention as well, for, for these silly people who do want to go down the climbing route and don't get in contact with you, apart from that being a mistake, what is another rookie mistake that someone like me would do if I was just going, right, I'm going to go climb a mountain. What is some of the usual mistakes or most obvious ones that you see? If you're going to do anything with altitude, then the mistake would be to go too fast. Mm. You need to learn a little bit about altitude. And, and, you know, very naively, I didn't know much when I went to Everest Base Camp the first time. But fortunately, there was um, a Himalaya Rescue Association group and it's a group of volunteer doctors at a place called Periche. And Periche is at about 14,000 feet in the Himalaya. And they had a briefing, a half hour briefing. And so I learned about, you know, what are the symptoms of altitude sickness? And there really are two. One is cerebral edema, which is headaches and swelling of the brain to the point where people um, go unconscious. Or the other one is pulmonary edema where there's a water buildup, both are fluid buildups up, by yeah. the way, on the chest. And um, people can drown in their own liquids if they don't go down. And the, the symptoms, of course, are headache, slight dizziness, uh, nausea, extreme fatigue. And if you don't heed that, you really are running a risk. And you can do this on Kilimanjaro. You can do this on any mountain Actually, for some people, 7,000 feet, mm. if they're coming from sea level, will kick them into altitude sickness. Now, they might not end up dying, but they might feel bad for two or three days. Yeah. And all they need to know is it's altitude. And they, if they're not going down at 7,000 feet, what they have to do is really breathe hard <sighs> to get oxygenated. In your daily life, when you are at sea level or whereabouts you are, in terms of your daily habits, I mean... What's uh, one of your daily habits if, I know they all go together, but it's a real priority for you. It, it could be a breathing exercise. It could be something that you think is a, a real essential part to your day. You have a bad day if you miss it out. Um, when you have a climb ahead of you, it's really easy to exercise mm. because you have to have a commitment to, you will automatically. That's why I would prefer. Yeah. I have a commitment to being ready for the climb. Because ultimately, the mountain doesn't care whether you fit or not. Mm. But when you have a degree of fitness that you require, you'll have so much more fun. Mm. And on Kilimanjaro, you don't have to have the ultimate degree of fitness, yeah. just reasonable degree of fitness. Yeah. I've, I've had a 285-pound person 
at high camp at 15 and a half thousand feet on Kilimanjaro. When we met at the airport, he had, he had originally committed to lose 100 pounds. He thought I was going to say, you can't climb. And I almost did. Yeah. And I thought, no, let him go as high as he can. I'll just keep observing him and I'll know and he'll know when it's time to stop. Mm -hmm. And he comes back and says it's the hardest thing he's ever done. And it's the best thing he's ever done in his life. Yeah. When you've got a summit coming, I suppose like all things in life, when you've got something coming, you've set that, that deadline, you've got to find a way and make it, you know, sort out the details and find a progression to get there. So I, power of a deadline is, it's nicer when it's a nice clear thing like a mountain peak. I love that. I love that. It's brilliant. Right on. And in fact, the same holds true for business. If you want to take your business to a certain point at a, at a certain time, let's say at the end of the year or in two years time, you really need to be crystal clear on what does your business going to look like? How would you describe it when it's at its ideal stage? And then if you don't have a business plan, you, you put yourself in that future position, look back at today and simply ask yourselves, what are all of the things that I had to do to get here? Yeah. And they call critical success factors. And the minute you've got those down, now you can start action planning and see what do I need to do on a daily basis to get there. Yeah, love it. So I suppose in, just in closing, what is the one question you either wished I'd ask or you thought I was going to ask and I feel like, you feel like I've missed it? Is there anything that springs to mind <laughs> just to cover myself? Absolutely nothing. I am floored by how good your questions were. Wow, thank you. At one point, great question, and I could have said that two or three times. And I, yeah, I mean that sincerely, Adam. Oh, cheers. I appreciate that. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure today, Werner. And if you can tell everyone you've been interviewed and pass on the podcast. I'm happy to do that. Thank you so much. A wonderful time. Head over to ayalpha.com. Now's the chance. If you've been listening to the show, feel free to book yourself in to discuss your goals and then create a path to achieve it. I'm here to help you, whether it's to give you that clarity or partner with you going into the end of 2016 to really finish off this year strong. If you're serious about taking some action, let's start it off with jumping on the phone with me. Have a great week and I'll speak to some of you very soon. It is time to awaken your alpha.